hundred in the last uh, 101 years uh, that uh, Libya's suzerainty and sovereignty was transferred by the Ottoman Empire uh, to Italy. And Italy remained the primary international external actor and factor in force in Libyan affairs until 1947. Uh, but ponder also that uh, Libya was the first place on the planet to which Americans mobilized and deployed forces in support of uh, removing a particular dynamic and aspect of the relationship and placing it, replacing it with one that was more related to trade and commerce and investment and commercial affairs. And ponder it also in terms of the Libyan ambassador. It's not always the case, or even most times uh, the case, where when a regime changes uh, the ambassador it had to a given country before the regime changed, is selected by the successor regime. Now, if that's not high tribute uh, to versatility and flexibility um, uh, within a diplomat, I don't know what versatility and flexibility on the diplomatic scene would be. And that the ambassador also uh, served in uh, Ottawa. Uh, so we have uh, the ambassador and the primary speaker who got his advanced education from Arizona. Uh, what more could one ask for a seminar like this in terms of North America, in terms of uh, Western Europe, and in terms of the Ottoman Empire? Mr. Ambassador, please welcome our speaker. And if you thought that Libya was marginal, Here's this magazine that has tens of thousands of subscribers putting Libya on the front cover. Ladies and gentlemen, good afternoon. I have a very small role to play today. I'm just here to introduce uh, Dr. Kelani, the Minister of Finance. But before I do that, uh, let me thank the um, National Council on U.S.-Arab Relations. We've been working together for a very long time. They opened their doors and their offices for me during uh, a difficult time, especially during the revolution in uh, 2011. And Dr. Anthony and Nassimu have been working together for the sake to promote the relations between our countries. Thank you very much. Also, I want to thank um, Robert Marrow, who is the new or the first president of uh, U.S. Libyan American Chamber of Commerce. Uh, this is a dream I lived a long time ago, trying to find something to help the Libyan community in the United States. And I thought the best way to do it, that to help to work with the community to create uh, the Chamber of Commerce. Uh, we've been working together for the last few months and the Chamber of Commerce now start endorsing the documents, start doing real business, but there's still a long way for them to go. Uh, this is not the only thing I'm expecting to do, but they 
or they will be in charge of many activities, sending delegations, receiving delegations, and part of the revenue of the Chamber of Commerce, they will be there to serve the Libyan community. Uh, thank you very much for helping organizing this um, event. Um, I came to know Dr. Kalani um, maybe just December last year in Tripoli. Uh, even uh, my nephew, he's uh, a professor in the same university with him for some time. But since we know each other, that uh, we uh, start to communicate. And um, as a minister of finance, I do really need his help and his support. So far, so good. Thank you, Dr. Kalani. Uh, Dr. Kalani, he was called by Prime Minister Ali Zidane to be a Minister of Finance in November last year. Uh, Dr. Kalani is from the south of Libya. He graduated, he is his BA from the University of Benghazi, which is the same university I graduated, graduated but a long time ago before him. His master is from Arizona. And uh, Arizona needs no protection. The weather, the people, the is we have many things in common with Arizona, especially in South Arabia. And his VHD is from Hull University. Dr. Kalani has more than 15 years experience in banking and accounting. Now he is uh, our Minister of Finance. Uh, here I stop, no further, and I ask Dr. Kalani to join me also to uh, thank the National Council and the Chamber of, of Libyan Chamber of Commerce for this uh, event. Dr. Anthony, again, thank you very much for your comments. I do appreciate working with you. Thank you. At this point in time, ladies and gentlemen, distinguished guests, it's, it's our pleasure to welcome the minister uh, to the podium who uh, say some uh, remarks. Minister. Good afternoon to everybody. <clears throat> First of all, uh, when I came here to uh, attend the meeting, the spring meeting of the uh, International Bank and uh, its groups, uh, I was uh, determined to express uh, two mail letters, messages. One of those messages, and the first one is the, to the international community, to the international bank and its groups. And the second message is to the American people. What messages? In terms of their content, uh, convey two things. First of all, on behalf of the Libyan people and on behalf of the Libyan government, 
want to express a deep appreciation for the strong support that we get from the international community for our road to the freedom, democracy, and transparency during the year of the revolution. And the second message is as the Libyan people try to build their new state, we try to build things from scratch. We inherited a piece of land, geographical piece of land. And ourselves, as Libyan people, we have a demolished state. There was no statehood as such. There was no institutions. And there's so many lives has been lost, around 50,000, many injured, many crippled, many handicapped. Building have been demolished, roads have been scrapped, and so on, and so on, and so on. So the second message, that the Libyan people, a Libyan state, we still in need of the help of the international community and the United States and our friends around the world more than we need them during the revolutions. We have a very challenging task ahead of us. It's a challenge to the international community. It's a challenge to the Libyan people. We have to prove to the world that as a Libyan people, we are capable of building back our country, our statehood. As international community, we want them to prove that they care about people, people all around the world, all over. And that's the real relation. The real relationship is between peoples. So in our road of building our states, of course, the most, one of the most important area is economics and business. As you already know, we've been for 40 years or more than 40 years. We don't have economy as such. We have some personal thoughts of a dictatorship who thinks that uh, he always does the best and he always should make the others follow him. We have a powerful dictator who had the resources of the country, who used them crazily in a way of a crazy manner, invest them to put the country as a Libya is one of the outlaws countries. Now, we are looking for future. We want to convey the message that we will be, as Libya, a responsible partner in the international community. We're looking for a democratic state, transparent state, opportunities for everybody.
on equal foot, on mutual interest with the rest of the world, in economics, and relations, social relations, and political scene, arena. Coming back to the economics and finance, probably what's most, most of you in here, they want to have some clearance for some issues in regards of the Libyan economics, the state of the Libyan economics, the future of the Libyan economics. Thank God, as you know, Libya is an oil producing country. But there's always a notion that because Libya is an oil producing company, is Libya is no need for financial help or technical help or other investment for investment. And this is not the case, as you all know. Scarcity resources always there. No matter how big is our wealth, we always need the help of the international community. In terms of economics, in terms of know-how, in terms of advice, in terms of technical assistance, in terms of direct and indirect investment. Our vision for the future, to build our state and economy, is built on three tiers, at least for the midterm period, which is the state will still have its rules through its budget to investment in the state, roads, maps, education, health, and so on. <coughs> Yet, we believe that the future is for the, our national private sector. So our national private sector, though for the time being, is suffering from the history of 40 years of distractions, we need to build the culture of the private business. We need to build environment for private business. We need to build a legal base for private business. And that's what we are doing as of now as a state, as the government. We put in our roadmap how to put back our private business back in business. And it will take time. You know the circumstances, you know the condition, you know the environment that Libya is in. And this is a state of fact. The other, the third part is the international business community. We'll be welcoming with open mind to everybody from the international business community, either indirect investments and indirect investment, direct and indirect investment. Pay to operate and transfer, PVC, uh, uh, terms of uh, contractors, or at, at any picture or at any capacity. <clears throat> Libya as economy, it has its future. 
if there is a huge country in terms of geographical space, but yet there's only population of around seven million. We need trust, we need uh, expatriate workers, we need expertise, and also to build the country, we're going to open the door for the international community business. Uh, Libya has so many resources that can be used and invested in. It's not just oil. It's oil, sun, water, tourism, and you name it. So the chance is for everybody to be there. We will be coming everybody so long that there's a mutual interest, that we are working in equal relationship, equal food, and uh, that mutual benefits. Yes, for the last two years, probably as a translated period of time in the Libyan economics history, what we start coming back. We already allocated in our budget more than 20 billion American dollars for capital investments, that's for developments. We already allocated other 40 billion for other expenditures, current expenditure and so on and so on. We think as of the capacity of the Libyan economics and the capacity of the Libyan society, this year, what left is in this, of this year, 2013, I think we will be covering ourselves very well in terms of financing our objects for this year. We already start talking with the foreign contractors who had their projects have been suspended at the beginning of the revolution, 2011. And we already come to some understanding to many of them. Many of them already has started coming back <coughs> to their business in Libya. So, the other message is, I was talking to the uh, Under Secretary of State for Economic Affairs this morning, and we had many issues, and we come to conclusion that it's about time to call upon American business American companies to come to Libya and have their business and investment. It's not just oil, it's construction, it's technology, it's tourism, there's many chances in there. The American people and American government were the first to come forward to help the Libyan people during the early days of our revolution. We have this, and we will have this, written in our books, our history books. So we don't, we, we don't want the American business and American companies to stay behind in coming back doing business in Libya. Of course, we always having 
the American business and American companies in our priorities to have business with. But time is time. Time is value. Time is money as well. Some of the companies from South Korea, from Turkey, from China, is already in there. It's probably because, you know, uh, as American business and American companies doesn't have that much business in terms of construction and technology and tourism, most of it is in the oil sector. But that doesn't mean that now the chance History is, history is history, now looking forward. And on the behalf of the Libyan government, I am calling upon all American business, all American companies, to start thinking, not just thinking, but doing, in coming back, and investment, invest in the Libyan economy. We will do all what we can do to facilitate facilitate all conditions, all environment, to all business and businesses to, their, to do their business in Libya. So again, this is the third message, and this is the third message to the American business. This is special for the American business. The two other messages already have been and this is for the international community and for the need of the Libyan people to the people in the international community for continuing helping us. But the third very important message in here, and this is the one that when I was leaving the building of the uh, Prime Minister, Mr. Al Zaydan, office. This is the message. He holds my hands and he said, he told me, this is the message I want you to convey to the American people, not to the American government, to the American people, to the American business, to American companies. Door is open and be sure that we'll facilitate all procedures, we're setting up all the legal and business environment, and we hope that just like you were forthcoming, first of governments who support the Libyan people during the revolution, in the beginning of the revolution, so we want you as well to be first to come forward and to start your business Libya. Thank you for the invitation and thank you for giving me the chance that I could clarify some of the issues or questions or queries that you may have. I may not be able to answer all questions. I may not be able to give all answers to each question. But I'll try my best clarify as much as I can as my position of Minister of Finance. Lately, thank you for the National Congress Council of the United States and Arab Relations. 
and I hope to see everybody of you, all these faces, sometime soon in Libya. Thank you. housekeeping notes here. Uh, we will entertain questions at the, very, at the conclusion of, uh, of our uh, session speakers' remarks. Those will be written on note, on note cards uh, as, as customary uh, with the previous briefings that we've done. So I just wanted to make that announcement. Uh, I also want to take this opportunity on behalf of Dr. Anthony to welcome uh, a very dear friend of the National Council on U.S. Arab Relations, He's sitting in the front here next to Ambassador Oisling, but I'd like him to stand and be recognized. The Arab League Ambassador, ladies and gentlemen, to the United States. Thank you. Two other points. Uh, second point is I want to also thank the uh, U.S. Libya Business Association for their participation uh, at today's event, and they're represented very well by, uh, by Paula Fur, who's in the very front uh, of the room. And I know Al Marchetti from Hess Energy is here also somewhere hiding, but I just wanted to say thank you. Um, and lastly, um, I, I want to thank the, uh, the delegation that traveled with the minister. Uh, Your Excellency, if you would just stand up so people know who you are, if they want to come chat with you at the very end uh, and, and be recognized. Thank you very much uh, for, for your participation, too. Uh, and I, uh, lastly, uh, I already said that. Finally, um, let's thank uh, the various embassies and diplomatic and U.S. government officials that are present in the room uh, today for this briefing event. So without any further remarks from me, I'm going to transfer this uh, podium over to uh, Robert Morrow, who's going to make a few remarks, uh, then to Dr. Paula, Rhonda, and then questions for the minister since I, I, and our distinguished panel. Thank you. Robert. Um. You know, let me start out by saying, a couple of years ago, before the revolution, uh, my son was having some knee surgery, and I was at the hospital waiting for him. Um, and I was sitting in the waiting room, and they had on the television um, the broadcast of Muammar Gaddafi talking at the United Nations. And I sat there, and I listened, because I had nothing better to do. And I listened, and I listened, and I kept thinking, you know, if there is any country in the world that needs to change its leadership, it's this one. <laughs> and sure enough, you know, here we are. Um, you know, the thing is, most Americans have a familiarity with Libya because most of us have grown up knowing the Marine Corps hand talking about to the shores of Tripoli. But most Americans have no idea where the shores of Tripoli actually are. So it's really a challenge to make sure that people understand where and what and why in Libya. You know, when you look around, when you look around at the events of the last couple of years with the Arab Spring, and you look and see what are the, what's the potential. You know, Egypt, great potential, huge problems, continuing huge problems. Syria, don't even have to say anything. Tunisia, stability, but very, very few resources. Look at Libya. Over the last two years, no matter what anyone would say about, you know, there is some security situation, but the country has been stable. It has seen a democratic election, an election process. It has seen a transition for the government. It's actually seen several new governments, and you've got people who are in place who are um, determined to make sure that that revolution sticks <clears throat> and it becomes something which is going to last for many, many years, many decades into the future. You know, when you talk about revolutions, 
Um, we think about our own American Revolution. How many years did it take for the United States to become an active, stable member of the international society? And how many years did it take before the government really knew what it was doing and how it could actually function? You know, as the minister said, um, like, like Libya, the United States had a huge piece of land and a lot of potential and a lot of resources. But it was not until over 100 years later that the U.S. was ready to step out into the, into the international stage and take its place as a world power. Now, with technology, with everything else, Libya has the opportunity to do that much sooner. But again, let me use the analogy of the American Revolution. What country helped the United States achieve the success of its revolution? The answer is France. Without the French, the U.S. Revolution would not have succeeded. Like in Libya, without the United States, the Libyan Revolution would not have succeeded. But what happened when the French ignored further developments in the United States? Who came in and became the prime economic partner, the prime um, you know, constant partner for the United States for the next hundred years? Curiously, the country we had fought against in the revolution, Great Britain. If the United States doesn't do something, if American companies ignore the situation in Libya, we're going to find that we're going to be on the outside looking in. And as the minister said, um, most people have a very, very good view of the U.S., very appreciative of the role that the United States has played. But if we don't do something to continue to, to nurture and to cultivate that relationship, we may wind up being second fiddle to all of the other countries. As the minister said, Turkey, Britain, France, Italy, Germany, they're all in there. They're all locking on the doors. But if you were a Libyan, if you were the Libyan government, you know, when I was serving overseas, um, American companies had the, the world's greatest reputation for wanting to come in, set up an investment, and then train the local people to become the key partners and even the key managers and directors of that relationship. Um, my first post overseas was in Malaysia. And at the time, Malaysia was just becoming, just leaving its, its status as an emerging country and becoming um, you know, able to, to, to really parlay its resources. Much like Libya, it had a lot of resources. It had a good feel for the, UN, for the U.S., but it had a long relationship with Great Britain. So when we spoke with American companies, a lot of their attitude was, you know, the Brits have a lock on this market. How are we going to compete? Um, I happen to have the, the advantage of, of having a Malaysian wife. So, you know, I had a, a lot of insights into the country, uh, I even had predicted back then that Malaysia had the potential of becoming one of the top trading partners to the United States. Well, it took a while, it took 25 years, but Malaysia became the 11th largest trading partner for the USA. It's parlayed its resources, it's been able to, to really achieve um, great things, great strides in democracy, great strides in economic prosperity. Same thing with Libya. Now, the thing is, how do American companies get involved? How do we make sure that we can, we can use those resources? How can we leverage them? The embassy is still small. The, the, the State Department, even the Commerce Department, have limited resources to go in there. That's why you need to have the resources of chambers of commerce, like our chamber, the American Libyan Chamber of Commerce and Industry. We are here to help American companies figure out who's lawyer, what they can do, who they should partner with, what the opportunities will be, and how they can take advantage of all of those. You know, um, we would ask all of you to think about the various chambers, whether it's us, whether it's the USLBA, uh, but to use those, me those, those mechanisms, use it as a platform 
to figure out how to go and get involved. You are not going to go to Libya for the first time and walk away with a handful of contracts. It's going to take time to, to, to develop the relationships and to set up the networks that you can use to succeed. Uh, it's chambers of commerce like ours that can help you do that. They can introduce you to the right people, introduce you to ministers, help put on events like this where you can get that information. Because if you turn on Channel 4 News, you're not going to find anything about Libya. You're not going to find that the, the, the minister was here. It's not going to be reported by, by the, the mainstream media. But if you want to know what's happening in there, if you want to have direct access to people like this minister or any of the other ministers, you need to come to organizations like this, where we can put you in touch, where we can give you that information and help you get the information that you need to succeed in your bottom line. So thank you very much. It's a pleasure. Mr. Ambassador, uh, Your Excellency, welcome here to Washington. Welcome back to the United States. Uh, and I hope, as you said, you will see us and all of us here many, many times into the future. Thank you. I'd like to welcome uh, Ms. Paul Frere uh, to the podium. Excellency. 
Um, we have been working, as you know, a long time on Libyan issues, trying to promote success, U.S. commercial success, which of course would promote Libyan jobs, which I know are so desperately needed. I would suggest, if, we, if I could be so bold, that it would be really important for the Central Bank of Libya and the Ministry of Finance to sign the U.S.-Libya Investment Incentive Agreement. This agreement, which has already been signed by over 150 countries, would allow the U.S. Overseas Private Invest Investment Corporation, known as OPEC, to open for business in Libya. Your Excellency, OPEC would guarantee that U.S. private investment uh, would go forward, it would issue political risk insurance to U.S. investors, would create enterprise funds which could invest in Libya, and pursue activities that facilitate more U.S. franchises to partner with Libyan businesses. I think if you could get this agreement signed, it would go a long way to doing achieving the goals that you are trying to achieve. Of course, you've got many challenges on your plate, but I want you to know that we are with you, and we're ready to continue to work with you, and that the U.S. Libya Business Association, your success is our success. Good luck. Uh, thank you, Paula. I'd like to uh, welcome uh, someone to the podium who, uh, who I think knows this law firm pretty well, um, since uh, she was here at the beginning of her career, but uh, uh, Rhonda Fabi-Hudom, a member of the Board of Directors at the National Council on U.S. Arab Relations. Rhonda. Thank you, Pat. Thank you. Uh, thank you very much. As Pat mentioned, forgive me for those of you who were here last week, as we were here last week. But I had my career start here at Welke Farr Gallagher as a young lawyer in Washington. And what I always like to point out, Richard, you're here. I see is Russ Smith here. Russ? There he is, Russ. Russ and I worked together, oh, how many years ago, Russ? 20? Should we say it? 20 years ago. And one thing that never changes in this law firm is this photo right here, Wendell Wilkie. Wendell Wilkie was one of the founders of this law firm. Many of you may know he was the Republican presidential nominee in 1940. Ran against Roosevelt. He obviously lost. But he went on to be appointed as an ambassador at large, if you will, throughout the international community and throughout the globe. And so I think it's so appropriate for the National Council, Dr. Anthony, to have international events here at this law firm. So I urge all of you to take a look at Wilkie Farr's vast reputation on international issues. It's a great place. Um, let me begin by um, sending my greetings and apologies. I was late because I was at a very important meeting, Ambassador Ojali. It was not with the President, it was with your wife. So I apologize. I was with Naima Ojali, and we got a little held up, but Ambassador, um, also Ambassador El-Sharif, it's nice to see you. I think I see you about once a week as well, is that right? That's right, welcome, Mr. Minister. We're very pleased to have you here, as you can see by the crowd in the room. If we could have fit more people in here, I'm sure we would have. The intense interest, of course, in Libya from a business perspective is quite broad and quite deep. Um, and the role that I would like to play today as somewhat of a commentator is to perhaps raise some of the questions that many in the audience have for you today and maybe might be a little bit shy to ask. So I'm going to play the role of an American company, an American company who has never been to Libya, an American company who has heard about the successes, and it has heard 
that Libya needs a lot. And so these are the questions from the American company. One, what are the opportunities in Libya today? Beyond the oil sector, and I certainly come from the energy sector myself, but beyond the energy sector, where do I go to find out what opportunities are there that exist? Number two, who and what ministry is responsible for those particular contracts in that particular sector? Number three, and most importantly, I get this all the time, who will actually be a signatory to the contract? So if an American company comes to Libya, visits, perhaps learns about the opportunities, what minister or what individual within the Libyan government will be responsible for signing that contract? Number four, most importantly, who's going to pay? So the financial responsibilities between the American company and perhaps the Libyan government, who will actually pay for those services? And finally, one thing that American companies are often puzzled by, and I think, as with anything, you'll get a number of different answers, do American companies have to partner with a Libyan private sector agent, entity? What type of contracts are available to partner directly with the Libyan government? Are there those types of contracts and opportunities in Libya? And finally, as all American companies are aware, and I'm sure, Mr. Minister, you're aware as well, we have something in America called the Foreign Corrupt Practices Act, and many, many U.S. companies always have that at the forefront of their minds. And what that means, and now my lawyer is coming out in me, is that many companies cannot engage with individuals in order to get a contract if there is somebody who they're dealing with that is in any way connected to the government. This is real. I know other countries around the world have something similar to this, the Foreign Corrupt Practices Act, the uh, British do, the UK does, and now uh, the OECD has a provision as well. But it is something that is in the forefront of many of these American companies' minds. So I'll finish up by saying um, I do know of many American companies in a variety of sectors who very much want to come to Libya. And I know Libya is a very welcoming place and very much wants U.S. companies to, to come there. And I'm sure today we'll have an opportunity to hear uh, these questions and others that may come from our audience. Thank you. Thank you very much. Thank all four of the um, presenters, and we hope that um, those in the audience are filling out their four by six cards and uh, passing them to National Council staff uh, standing uh, in the audience. Um, Mr. Minister, if I may take the privilege and pleasure of asking the first question. In 1956, uh, 12 years, 13 years before the regime changed when the monarchy was overthrown in September uh, 9, 1969, uh, led by Muammar Gaddafi. Uh, there was on the books, at least, a an organization called the Maghreb Permanent Consultative Committee. Now, within the League of Arab States and within the United Nations Charter, uh, there are green lights for regional organizations being established, sub-regional organizations being established, uh, 
and uh, justify from the strategic perspective that these would have the potential for uh, building blocks for something greater in the realm of institutionalization and organization in specific regions so that the United Nations General Assembly or Security Council would not have to handle or address each and every uh, issue that uh, emerged. Uh, to my knowledge, nothing really came of that uh, organization, uh, though it was one of the earliest uh, under the Pan-Arab uh, umbrella. And it was when Libya was a monarchy. Uh, most people do not associate Arab nationalism or Arab unity with a monarchy. And then again, in uh, February 14, 1987, uh, the Maghreb countries again uh, declared that they would uh, henceforth engage in mutuality of cooperation for a reciprocity of reward. And in between those two efforts was the so-called Confederation of Arab Republics, for which a building was actually constructed uh, in Heliopolis in Cairo, where there would be representatives from Libya, Sudan, Egypt, and uh, Syria. Um, where is Libya in its strategic thinking with regard to regional dynamics regional organizations. Of course, we know it's undeniable that uh, the United Arab Emirates and Qatar uh, played roles, uh, logistical and operational and other, uh, during the doubtful days of violence as the regime was, was trying to establish its new footing. Where is Libya in terms of regional dynamics? regional affairs, regional factors, and you might even throw in Mali, Chad, uh, neighbors or distant near neighbors of Libya with regard to Al-Qaeda and Arab North Africa. Thank you. I'm glad that um, I already mentioned that uh, probably I won't have uh, all answers to all questions and a full answer for the, each question. And, uh, uh, this is the first one. Probably, uh, Dr. Anthony is talking about 56. I was four years old. <laughs> but you were a leader then. And they already have some kind of listening history of Libya today, in here, this moment. But uh, taken from the the end of the uh, whole discussion. Um, look into the future, as I declare principles of the 17th February revolution, is that Libya as a state with its people They already have the lesson from history. We already had our very expensive lesson 
from the last 40 years experience. For the military coup in 69, Libya was a very respectable state within the international community. And as a Libyan citizen, all of us around the world have been and we have been treated as the best around the world, as a responsible state, responsible citizen. Now, it's the first of our principles after the revolution, 17th of the revolution. We think that we go back to the constitutions, to the constitutional state. And that means, all in all, Libya as a state is going to be a member of the, as I mentioned, a responsible member across the board, politically, economically, socially, all around the rainbow colors. We'll be honoring all old agreements so long those agreements are mutual benefits and interest of the Libyan people and our friends. Of course, Libya as a country is a member in the Middle East countries. In the Arab world, and Islam is the main religion. Then we come to Africa, then we come to the rest of the world. We come to the Mediterranean, and to the rest of the world. We believe sincerely that we are here in this world to live together with the rest of the world, either through the United Nations or any other regional or international organizations, and so on. We think that the prosperity and peace around the world is a main factor for the prosperity and peace in Libya. In that regard, this is in principle. This is something that, that a decision has been taken. No going back to unresponsible action of terror action of individual thoughts. Um, I might just say something. Uh, I remember back in 1989, I was listening to the BBC radio from Tripoli. And the anchor man was uh, giving some type of description to the man-made river in Libya. And when he finished his report, he said, this project, to do this project, you have to have a person who has three things. First, power, powerful, rich, and crazy. 
and Qaddafi had all of them. That's history. Now, we looking forward we as international uh, member, international community member, responsible, have a good relation to everybody, so long it's based on mutual benefit and interest on equal feed footing with its transparency and benefit support. I hope that I give you some flavor at least of answering your question. Uh, yes, indeed you did. Thank you for that answer. Uh, this question is uh, for Paula and Bob uh, Maro. Uh, how much does it cost to join one of these business groups? And is the price set to encourage small and medium enterprises or just another uh, network uh, organization of big companies uh, as insider groups in the realms of uh, trade and finance and uh, commercially viable joint ventures? I understand the question. USLBA has a sliding uh, scale of different due structures depending on the size of the firm and how active you want to be in the organization. It is not a quote insider group unquote. Uh, we, we have members that are small companies all the way to the large companies. Members who have never had any business in Libya but hope to. Two members who have long established roots in the country. So we're always willing to talk to new members, always changing our, our goals and um, operations as the members need them to change. We're very flexible, and I would strongly suggest that you get in contact with the association if you're interested in talking to us. Uh We've tried to make it as, as, as widely available as possible. You know, so for a charter member, it, which is the top of the, uh, the, the heap, uh, it's $12,000 per year. Um, for a regular member, it's $6,000 per year. And for an associate member, it's $3,000 a year. And there are discounts available for NGOs and other uh, nonprofits, et cetera. But as part of that, what we're trying to do is to use, we're, we'll be uh, rolling out an electronic platform that we're going to develop um, that will allow companies to explore the market and to uh, use IT as a way of, of developing contacts, relationships, uh, finding potential partners, finding people who would be interested in working with that American company. Um, so Libyan companies can also come on. We can help pre-select, pre-screen those companies so that we can recommend uh, companies to our American members and vice versa. Uh, there's a variety of other different programs, et cetera, that we're also going to do part of which is, is included in the, the membership fees. Others, if, it's, uh, uh, if there are direct costs involved, for example, if we go into a trade show, uh, a trade show there, we want to have electronic pavilions and others, other mechanisms, um, will, there'll be a, a, a similar sliding scale, so that depending upon the level of participation that the American company wants and finds appropriate, um, they, they, they can have it. But the idea is to make this as widely available as possible, Unfortunately, um, we do need to have the resources to be able to carry these things out, um, but we want to make it such that 
as wide a range of American companies can explore this very potentially profitable market as possible uh, without having to actually physically go there until they've, they've uh, learned a little bit more about what's going on and whether or not that trip will result in some specific business that they can do. Thank you. Those are, and both excellent examples couldn't be clearer. Um, this next question uh, has two parts, or at least they're, they're related to each other. Uh, first part, is everything as stable in Libya as you claim? It appears parts of Libya are presently ungovernable. For example, there are groups linked to the Libya Islamic Fighting Group, uh, allegedly connected to Al-Qaeda, groups that the West worked with to remove Gaddafi uh, that are still active throughout the country. Uh, somewhat related to that is who is in charge of implementing border security opportunities, challenges, and solutions. And how much uh, would you estimate how much of the fiscal year uh, 2013 budget is allocated to border security? Or could you give us a sense of where is security on the scale of priorities uh, along with the economic and business development? objectives. Thank you. As you already know, the, uh, the Libya revolution was uh, a revolution of the people. So there was no revolutionary concept. There was no certain people leading the coup. There was no political party that was leading people in Libya for the revolution. Things happened naturally that everybody, all parts, all society, they all come together and agree to make a revolution. So this thing is expected. You have different people with different thoughts. Uh, the real state of the uh, of the situation in Libya now, mostly that uh, we have already taken steps towards building the statehood. We're already having the National Congress elected directly from people, and this is one of the success stories of the Libyan Revolution. We're already having an elected government. We're already working on building up our securities, national security, building up our armies, as I mentioned in the opening speech, we inherited a piece of land with people, no institutions, 
no statehood, accept the people and the will of the people. So it's natural enough. What you see around in Libya now, this is only natural. What happened in Libya, sometimes I'm calling it as a small scale Second World War. It wasn't easy. I'm calling it a Caesarian operation, not a normal delivery of our freedom and our revolution. But again, if you sense the feeling of the street, that ordinary man in the street, he is a civilian citizen who is working hard and looking forward to establish a state, a civil state, a responsible state. Of course, there are some groups here and in there and in there. But they are not that much effective to our goals for the building a responsible state. Yes, there's some trouble here and there, but if you, if you have a full picture of the methods, how the revolution was, quantity of women have been spread around. You think, if you are in here, you think that when you go to Libya, you will find militia everywhere, people carrying guns, people carrying pumps, you will find people fighting in the streets, you don't think there's stores, you don't think there's government, you don't think that there's state departments who are working, or any others. This is, this is natural to think this way. And this is why I really appreciate this chance to clarify some of those thoughts. No. Life is going in Libya. Business is doing business. Government doing its uh, uh, work. Uh, we already start building the security forces around the streets, around the main cities. <coughs> We're already controlling our borders. Yes, there's some kind of trouble here and there, uh, and most of that trouble is related to smuggling. Smuggling uh, food stuff, smuggling other things because of the subsidies nature in Libya, prices low in Libya, and most of that trouble that you probably heard across the across the border line is not something related to the safety of the country itself. It's related to kind of uh, smuggling uh, of food stuff and, and other things. Yet, I'm not saying that we, what we are back uh, uh, to full security, uh, full state, and other things, but we are doing very well. We are going ahead. And uh, uh, you, you may not just listen to the media. You may not just read things in the newspapers, or watch TV, or listen to radio, and make up your mind. You have to, you have to talk to the people who were in there. People, even Americans themselves, and I met some of the Americans in there, from the state departments, who were very astonished in the way they find Libya. They thought that there will not be, there is not uh, an open restaurants. There is no security, there is no statehood, and it's all of these things. Yes, there is some trouble, 
here and there, but we are doing our best. And we're going fastly, and we think uh, as, 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 a, uh, uh, as very close watching the, the circumstances in there, it is better than ever. Uh, the first part of this next question is uh, admittedly, admittedly controversial, and the second part uh, somewhat academic and uh, seemingly uh, neutral. The first part, what are you currently doing to stop the massive corruption that is uh, rapidly taking place in Libya on every level of the administration uh, and the academic uh, question is what is the status of uh, movement forward on the already signed trade and investment framework agreement between Libya and the United States I think it's very strong statement to, to, to say um, there is the uh, financial and uh, administrative corruption everywhere, all the times. That uh, literature sometimes, yes, uh, in the history now. Uh, probably your experience of the gentleman who is asking the question, he's talking about something probably late 2000, somewhere 2010 to 2011 before the revolution. During that time, it was not, it is, uh, in our standard, it's corruption. But in the standard of those people who were practicing these things, the regime people, they think it's normal practice. We, as ordinary people, yes, we say this is corruption. But by then, by that time, they believe, just like I say, somebody who is powerful, rich and crazy and he they thinks he is he himself his family and his followers close followers they think that god had heritage them libya with people and wealth so they don't think it's corruption they think that their natural right this is the thing that make the people make the revolution now we look for a state a state soon was built on constitutions, laws, regulation, and uh, transparency, and democracy. Believe me, probably, yes, it's very early, very early to, to see things, to see results. But it's coming. Otherwise, why should we sacrifice for 50,000 martyrs? More than 50,000 handicapped. If we don't stay in the same state soon. These things, hopefully, they are, and I'm sure it's back to history. Yes, there's some kind of exercise these days around because of some people here and there, but it's not a, uh, a full picture. Um, to the second question, um, I have to confess that I don't have that much background before the agreement for the trade and investment between Libya and the United States. But if there is any, uh, I hope that, uh, and I think, and I believe, that will be carried out just according to its terms. So long, it's in the 
mutual benefit of both parties. Uh, is Libya planning to move from a resource-based economy to a knowledge-based economy, meaning in terms of does it need help uh, building its science, technology, and higher education institutions? If so, who should one contact? Of course, it's one of these tricks that to build a responsible citizen is to ask himself, as your late uh, President Kennedy said, ask yourself what you offer to your country rather than what your country have offered for you. The, uh, the, the culture of just sitting around and uh, asking for salaries and uh, uh, resources from your country that's something that God would be working of, you know, uh, should be history. Um, human resources is very important uh, aspect in the thinking of this government, of this revolution. First of all, building the human being. This is the pointing, this is the start point in our revolution, in our thinking, in our principles. Yes, we uh, have so many universities as of now, uh, so many technical uh, institutes uh, as of now. Probably they are not utilized effectively and efficiently, but the new thinking, the new state is we are going to invest in our people, our human resource, our education, our health, and all of these things. And we're already having a uh, uh, responsible organizations who is dealing with it in the Ministry of uh, Education, Higher Education, Ministry of uh, Education, uh, Ministry of Health, we have uh, the Human Resource in the uh, Ministry of Labor and Human Resource. So we are having this in mind and we hope that the new media is something different from what you probably had in mind. You know, I think one of the, you know, the functions of a, like a chamber can also be if you have a very good idea of something that would be beneficial to Libya as a country, you know, come and talk to us. We, we perhaps can help bring that to the attention of the people in charge there so that it's not coming in as a private company, but it could be something which is an initiative coming out of the United States of America. And it's something that we could do that would involve a number of different companies that would also be able to help and to benefit the entire educational structure in a way that, that is going to be, you know, as a neutral champion, that we may be able to help uh, promote that. We have about five minutes re remaining. Uh, Libya is no doubt indebted to a few countries uh, that uh, were especially significant in supporting Libya's uh, revolution. Do you feel any pressure or obligation to those countries in terms of rewarding them in any way or giving their companies and citizens priority in the available new opportunities in Libya? Honestly, I'm serious. Uh, thank God, um, it's one of those things that uh, probably you may not believe. 
no single country have asked the Libyan government to do any favor because of the participation of the liberations. And thank you, we are very thankful to our friends around the world, United Nations, United States, Britain, Europe, the rest of the world. And we thank you for this, something God gave. So I uh, can assure you, but we, as a Libyan citizen, as a Libyan government, we feel that we have not to pay back in terms of you know materialistic things or something like this, but just just to say thank you to everybody. The last question is, how does Libya, or even if you can't generalize, how do you look at two of your neighbors, Tunisia, which in many cases is believed to have been the first to start the so-called Arab Spring, uh, toward your west, and immediately to your east, Egypt, uh, which follows soon after the example of Tripoli. Uh, those of us here are, for the most part, now the Tunisians or Egyptians. Uh, but would appreciate your sharing perspectives of Libya towards those two neighbors. Of course, so Tunis and Egypt is our backyard. And uh, stability in Tunis is stability in Libya. And stability in Egypt as well is stability in Libya as well. The same goes for stability in Libya is stability for uh, Egypt and Tunisia, and its uh, history, and its geography. Uh, um, in my view, I think that both Tunisia and Egypt have different cases, and different cases of from Libya as well. Uh, I believe that what's happening in Tunisia uh, what was happening is something natural, acceptable, and uh, yet I think that the uh, Tunisian government, the ruling government as of now, they are doing uh, uh, a very uh, practical, uh, logical, and uh, wise actions towards the movement of the street and the other groups. And um, I think that's uh, uh, the coming days uh, and years uh, will take Tunis to, uh, to a better position, and uh, uh, I think they will come, uh, uh, you know, with their uh, this problem will be alleviated anyway. In Egypt, the picture probably more bleak country with, uh, you know, population of around 100 million now. Country had different uh, sectors of uh, of people. There's Muslims, there's uh, Jews, there's uh, Christians, there's uh, rich, there's poor, there's uh, uh, people who are uh, in, uh, in certain groups in uh, certain beliefs, uh, religions, and so the picture is more more difficult. Keep in mind that the economic resources of Egypt is limited. 
and the Egyptian society uh, had to suffer during early 60s and uh, 70s from a direction of the uh, and the culture of the belief that uh, government should provide service, government should provide uh, uh, projects and so on and so on. So with the situation as of now, I think the, that the more hard days will be coming to Egypt. Uh, as of uh, both of them are, they are our neighbors, for sure they will affect stability if there's any. But we are doing uh, all what we can with our friends to uh, alleviate such things. Well, we began on time and we are wrapping this up on time. We want to thank the ambassadors who took time out of that busy schedule to attend. Uh, we want to thank those in the audience. Mr. Minister, you, you must be impressed positively by the numbers that turned out and by the seriousness of, of their questions. And we thank the commentators, uh, Mr. Marrow, Freer, and Rhonda Fafi, Rudome, and Patrick Mancino. Thank all of you for coming. If you allow me to turn to me, I just want to uh, answer briefly two questions of this family out of probably eight or ten questions. She asked you asking me about Obey. And I already was talking this morning with the undersecretary. Uh, for economics affairs in the uh, state departments about this uh, the issue of public. And um, Mr. Uh, Ambassador, Mr. Aljoji, uh, have given me some brief uh, around this, uh, this issue. And um, uh, we already uh, made agreement that we will carry on on this, uh, uh, on this kind of agreement of public between Libya and the American companies, uh, and uh, Mr. Ambassador had told me that there's already some work has been done in that area, and we'll be carrying it on and giving it priority. This is our view. And uh, the second question, which is the uh, business chances in Libya, beside the oil sector, it's open, open buffet. <laughs> Name it. There's communication chance, housing, hospitals, tourism, hotels, even private uh, uh, universities and schools and so on and so on. So there's so many chances in there for investments. Who's going to pay for them? Depends. If it's a governmental project, then the government will pay for it. Budget. If it's private sector, then it's private sector. You are as a contractor. If you go there for, you know, to direct investment, we're hoping it's we're coming to this uh, uh, area as well. So that's investment. That's direct investment that you, you pay for it. Probably, you know, uh, you could have financing your investment to the bank sector leader or something. That's, that's something else. But 
by the end of the day, if they fall by yourself. Uh, yeah. Who's going to sign contracts? It depends on what kind of business. We're talking about housing, then there's a housing ministry. We're talking about agricultural projects, then get Ministry of Agriculture. Education, there's Ministry of Education, and so on, and so on. There's different departments for different investments. Um, again, uh, when we come to, to corruptions, uh, I hope that's, that's one of the main reasons that because of the revolution. As I said, uh, if you have any experience just before the revolution, those people who probably you're talking about, they are thinking that they are, they are not doing something, taking something that is not their right. They think that's their right. That's how they believe. And uh, it's not a, a matter of commission, 5%, 10%. They come up to 50%, 75%, and so on and so on. So this is what might be people in the revolution. You know? I think this is most of the questions that, you, that I can answer. Probably have to. Um, Mr. Minister, uh, for a takeaway for yourself as you return to your country and then your further meetings here, I uh, wanted you to be absolutely clear about uh, our vision and our mission. Uh, our vision is a firmer foundation for the positive aspects of Arab-U.S. relations than has existed that does exist at the present time, or is likely to exist unless enough good people on both sides work to make it happen. And as to what would characterize this firma foundation, it would be stronger on the peace, justice, and ending of conflict uh, levels. It would be stronger in terms of access to resources and you mentioned a mutuality of benefit. Another way of saying the same thing is a reciprocity of reward. And also respect for each other's national sovereignty, political independence, territorial integrity, and foreign policies, leave aside the domestic ones, foreign policies in terms of non-interference in the affairs of others with the golden rule being a god stone of do not do unto others that which you would not have others do unto you. And trade, investment, and commerce that you've underscored here. And in time and as appropriate, defense cooperation. And also the soft power dynamics and dimensions, gender rights, civil rights, uh, human rights, uh, political pluralism uh, but in pursuit of this we have a mission and uh, that one that mission is one word namely education but even in pursuit of that mission uh, humility is our guideline uh, we have no uh, copyright on the concept we have no monopoly on the method we have no trademark on the technique and certainly we have no patent on the process. You've helped us move the vision and help fulfill an important part of the mission today, sir. Thank you.